I'm going to do a short presentation on the people's land policy um, since we're organizing it and uh, the people's land policy is aiming for land reform from the ground up that means we don't see ourselves as a sort of a think tank or um, who are coming up with a set of policies which we will then cascade down to everyone else. It's more of an issue of bringing people together to discuss why land is important and together developing ideas for change. And then all together trying to work towards building a movement for land justice. And in our last uh, seminar, we talked about why land was important. And uh, this was a quote from uh, someone in the a quote from someone in the seminar who says we cannot resolve any of the crises facing us without dealing with the land issue and the kind of crises we're facing are food the one we're obviously talking about today but they're also environmental there's housing crisis community resources which are being continually undermined the problem with green and open spaces you're not enough for everyone to have access to so there's a number of crises that we're we're struggling against so what's the land issue and how does it relate? Well, the land issue is how is land used? Who gets to decide how it's used? Who has access to the land and who benefits? This is what we mean by the land issue. And the problem is, is the current system is based on, is based on injustice and great inequality. And because of this, this contributes to injustice and inequality in other parts of society. So this seminar series is land and food, social justice and ecological responsibility. Food is a particularly important area for when we're looking at land reform. Over 70% of land in the UK is used for agriculture, less in Scotland, but very high in England and Northern Ireland. Also, it's important because we are all eaters, as someone said at the Oxford Real Farming Conference. Everyone is implicated. Everyone is affected by issues to do with food. And it impacts on everything. How land is used impacts on all these different issues, environment, economic and social justice, our way of life and people's livelihood. Seminar one, we looked at the Agricultural Act. There might be some positive features for the environment, but we felt it was largely inadequate for promoting and rewarding small-scale agroecological farming and good quality affordable food. Um, certainly inadequate for dealing with issues that we're going to talk about tonight. Campaigners like the Land Workers Alliance are working hard to change this, but obviously I don't think anyone is holding their breath as to how much this government is going to be helping small farmers. Um, the second seminar was land and food in the UK and we looked at how concentrated land ownership is and how it's dominated by large agribusiness and this has made it very difficult for small ecological farms to survive. Horticulture, the growing of fruit and veg, we were told that it's roughly 5% of total agricultural land, which is nothing. It really is very small. And instead, we import so-called cheap food from abroad. But this cheap food is, of course, relies on cheap labor. And basically, that's another word for very extremely exploited labor. 
It's very difficult for new entrants to get access to land, especially for those outside traditional farming backgrounds. And we heard about how difficult becoming a farmer is. We shared you know, one person's very long and difficult journey. And it seemed that we were in desperate need for some system, systemic change. Today's, uh, tonight's seminar is really looking at how can urban and peri-urban farming contribute to the transformation of this food system. So what is needed to ensure that these forms of food production flourish and bring food justice to all? And we have a number of speakers who I will have a lot to say about these issues. Um, they'll be introduced in due course. I'm only starting out by introducing our first speakers, which is Fiona from Capital Growth and Rob from Fringe Farming. Both are from Sustain. They're going to give an introductory talk to some of the key issues about the key issues we're facing. And then we're going to move on to the panelists. Here's a list of our panelists here, but we'll introduce them a bit more fully later. So if I could hand over then to, I think Fiona, are you going first or is it Rob? I am indeed. Um, thank you, Bonnie. It's really interesting to hear about the, um, the two seminars that have come before this one. Um, and also more about the people's land policy. Um, and thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here for what feels like an a really important and timely discussion about urban and peri-urban food growing. Um, like Bonnie said, I'm Fee. I coordinate Capital Growth, which is part of the food and farming charity Sustain. Um, before we hear from the great panelists that Bonnie's just mentioned tonight, um, Myself and Rob, also from Sustain, are going to introduce the work that we do to support urban food growing. So ho hopefully we can help to set the scene and the bigger picture um, for you before hearing from the people who are doing the real work um, and launching into tonight's discussion about where land access and land justice comes into it all. Um, so I plan to cover our food growing network here in London and also why urban food growing is such a great thing, why it's become so popular, the impact the pandemic has had um, and how urban food growing communities have responded to the crisis. But I'll also touch on some of the barriers and challenges that we've noticed, including how they relate to land. Um, and then Rob will introduce the work he's doing to bring agroecological food production to the urban fringe of our cities. Um, and he can provide us with the bigger picture and the really exciting potential there. Um, yeah, let's start by just, you know, establishing what we mean when we talk about urban food growing. We're, we're talking about a mosaic or a patchwork of green space used by communities to grow food, um, such as gardens, community gardens, larger growing spaces like allotments, and then bigger market gardens and fringe farms. So some of these are really grassroots led by volunteers and the community. Others are part of um, city farms or projects that receive funding and pay staff. And then we have our market gar gardens or urban farms that occupy bigger spaces, often, um, like I said, on the fringes of our cities and connecting urban with rural and growing and trading and employing people and providing people with fresh produce on the doorstep. Um, I'll just say a few words about capital growth. We're a, a food growing network in the capital. We help Londoners who want to grow their own food across all the different patches of green space I've just referred to. And we do this in a variety of ways. We offer a map and database tool for growers to access and use. We deliver food growing training um, every year. We run volunteering and network events. 
Um, we offer signposting for funding and jobs and we create spaces for grassroots activity like our upcoming national um, Good to Grow uh, weekend. Um, we generally want growers and growing projects to feel connected and be part of something bigger by joining our network. Um, and of course, a lot of our job is also about promoting more widely the importance of um, urban food growing. So these graphics on the left show some of our original achievements. Um, but since this time, we've recently invited our 3000th um, growing space into the network. Um, so it's worth just, you know, asking ourselves why all this interest in uh, growing food in our cities. Um, and you probably know a lot of these, probably know a lot of this already, but um, but let's uh, let's remind ourselves. So a lot of us live here in uh, in our cities, 83% in fact. Um, it's really, really good for us. Um, there's a lot of evidence, um, mounting evidence in fact, and if, if you haven't already, um, do check out our Growing Health Project, which has kind of pulled together a lot of that, um, a lot of that evidence about uh, food growing for our mental health, our physical health, it makes us feel better. Um, and more recently, Sheffield University's also recently published some uh, evidence about the mental health benefits, but also how it brings communities together and reconnects people with food. Um, we've got a climate crisis going on, so urban food growing spaces offer some solutions here by increasing biodiversity and uh, wildlife corridors. There's a really interesting came across recently about the uh, importance of community gardens in our cities for pollinating insects. Um, our damaging food system is really fragile and it relies so much on imports and this last year the pandemic Brexit has made it all the more urgent to look at how we create more resilient food supplies and diversify where and how we grow our food and urban food growing offers the potential to scale up production as well as enhance food security and um, I just mentioned on the slide here opportunities for employment and local economy and I'll, I'll let Rob maybe talk to that point a little bit more um, in a moment. Um, it's also worth noting that there's been a big surge of interest in food growing. You know, we saw seed packets flying off the shelves at the beginning of the pandemic, um, allotment waiting lists, you know, increasing significantly, 300% in one council. Um, and um, and you know, for the last year, we've seen growers and spaces responding to the pandemic by pivoting a bit what they do and helping people stay connected and keep growing, as well as welcoming in new people who want to grow their own. And examples in in London include organisations like Incredible Edible Lambeth, Environment Network, Cordwainers in Hackney, to name just a few. And people have been growing for their communities, identifying surplus produce of vacant space to grow on, often reaching the most vulnerable people in their communities who can benefit the most from fresh, healthy and affordable produce. Um, even when local guidance was really sketchy about um, whether community grow, gardens could remain open, some growers continue to grow, mobilise themselves, scaled up production. Um, across our network, we've been supporting growers via our Community Harvest Initiative, um, and I think some of you are in the room tonight. We've helped um, gardens connect with, up with mutual aid groups, and uh, such as food banks and, um, and other community groups, offering training, matching them up with mentors, offering the support and the seeds and materials along the way to produce that food and distribute it. Um, and those gardens produced um, uh, over five tonnes um, 
And I think this just really scratches the surface of what's been happening in all of our cities up and down the country and the potential for urban food growing to tackle major issues um, like poverty and to respond to food insecurity um, and respond you know, in a crisis. Um, I'll also let, I think Rob may mention the amazing take up with local veg schemes as well in a moment, but safe to say that people are really becoming aware of our um, long supply chains and the, the need to have more direct contact with growers and fringe farmers have really uh, seen this and, and met this increasing demand. Um, just a little point on the Community Harvest Initiative, we're going to be sharing those case studies of uh, some of those amazing gardens in the coming weeks and we're really excited about that so look out for those and, um, and also really excited about a series of events called uh, Growing Resilience Through Food which uh, we'll be publishing all the information soon um, but a lot of that um, learning um, has come out of, uh, of our work with uh, the Community Harvest Initiative. So hopefully we can inspire others. Those sessions are going to be on um, culturally appropriate food growing, engaging young people and, and connecting more with the local community as, as growing spaces. Um, so I just want to touch on kind of opportunities and challenges as, as we see them. Um, so I think we've, you know, I've kind of established with with us tonight that lockdown has really reawakened our interest in food growing um, at the same time it's given us cause to reevaluate how important local urban green spaces are to us including uh, food growing spaces um, we've you know we've seen some really good uh, leadership coming from some councils um, sustain launched a report uh, back in november called response resilience and recovery i'll, I'll put the link in the chat in a moment um, and you know we highlighted leadership on food growing and um, and some of the good work some of the really promising work going on there um, and you know just coming back to I mentioned Sheffield the, the 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 research project with Sheffield University they also worked out that using only 10% of a city's urban green spaces and gardens could um, could feed 15% of the population and Maybe that's not such a daft thing to, um, to aspire towards. Um, but there are also significant roadblocks. And uh, I've mentioned uh, how we valued green spaces and growing spaces through the pandemic, which I think everyone can agree with, but um, there are inequalities around who has access to these spaces, uh, whether we're talking about home gardens or shared uh, outdoor spaces or parks or community gardens. And there's a lot of work to be done uh, around how community gardens start serving the whole community. And if they're not, why not? And who's got access to allotments, etc. Um, in a survey we did a few months ago, for example, with community gardens, around 40% said that their growing activities didn't reflect fully the local community. And this leads to other challenges around perception of community food growing. Um, and if you haven't had the chance, um, you know, I'd urge you to find out a bit more about Tayshan Hayden-Smith's work with Grow to Know. Um, he's doing some really inspiring work around what we need to do to change perceptions that food grow community food growing isn't a white middle-class luxury hobby and what we need to do to engage young people and, and politicising um, urban food growing a bit more. And I'm excited to hear from Eileen a bit later about their new project, which is doing some really important work in this area. Um, I've also mentioned, yeah, just at the bottom of that slide there, um, trying to make a living out of growing food and, and, and the housing crisis. Um, so I'm just gonna, before I hand over to Rob, I just kind of 
made a little list of some of the you know next steps and the action that's needed you know this this list could be much longer i'm sure everyone here could add to it and um, we need to keep doing uh, work within the movement and also like policy and planning needs to kick in a bit more um, we need to keep talking about how cool urban food growing is and why it's so important and keep moving up the agenda, joining up the dots with health initiatives, etc. Um, we really need to work on not just um, access to land, but also protecting existing spaces and um, sustain. We're going to be starting a project uh, this spring around kind of food designation for community. Um, and we've talked a little bit already about councils. They've got such a huge play, to, such a huge role, sorry, to play in supporting urban agriculture as um, owners of land. Um, so, and yeah, community gardens they should be playing a role in our recovery plan. Um, you know, we've 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 we know about. Um, uh, how they contribute to com community resilience and um, and and also emerging kind of contributions to food security and of course all you know also action on climate change. Um, so I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to um, hand over to Rob. Evening everyone. So I'm going to build on Fee's overview of urban agriculture with a little bit more about um, the edge of our cities, this kind of exciting, strategic place full of potential um, for jobs, uh, livelihoods, fresh, culturally appropriate foods, education programs, kind of at the at the fringes of our of our cities. Um, so if we go into the next slide, so in the, in the time we have together, I'm going to kind of. The, just briefly say what you know. What is this? These words. What is the peri-urban? Um, a little bit about what agroecological farming or agroecology is in terms of farming approaches um, to this farming, uh, and then why why fringe farming? What are the benefits of of fr fringe farming? Um, and then kind of looking at highlighting access to land as a barrier and why. Uh, Sustain is running this fringe farming collaboration this year and what we're doing and then just kind of raising a few little a few little nuggets that have emerged in the last two months to share with you in terms of you know a, a people's land policy so where is the peri-urban it's um it's blurry really isn't it because it's like the fringe it's the edge of the city um in a recent report um i read that it's kind of it could be defined like 10 kilometers beyond the city edge if you're thinking like geography or something. Um, interestingly, in the UK, there's some of the most fertile soils for growing food in, in the peri-urban, which is why it's a strategic place to be growing food for cities and communities. Um, a lot of the land around cities are protected by the green belt and urban sprawl and, and the kind of um, destroying the rural um, rural nature and the benefits of biodiversity, which is why agroecology is so important, which we'll get onto. And then just kind of a historic note that around 50 years ago, there were, there were a lot of market gardens around our cities um, that would provide the more perishable foods, especially um, into the cities. Um, and these have kind of been lost, these businesses um, in the last 50 years, partly due to supermarket monopolies, a lot of kind of centralised um, imports into the UK through a, through a global food system. But we won't go into that too much tonight. That's another slideshow. So 
The, the project I'm working on with sustained fringe farming focuses on agro, agroecology at the edge of the city. And I just wanted to, you know, let's not, let's not throw words around uh, without a little bit of just checking in. So um, the exciting thing about agroecology is it's a farming approach that integrates ecological and social principles in producing food with the, with the broad aim of kind of having regenerative systems. When I say regenerative, I kind of mean uh, working with natural cycles, emphasizing farmers' knowledge, um, and, and this might be ecological in the sense of um, there's no pesticides. But something I, that, I, that I notice sometimes in Europe especially is that the social elements of agroecology are, are, are not mentioned so much. There's an emphasis on the green. So, um, you know, social elements like livelihoods for workers, um, deep democracy, equity, justice are all um, in the roots of agroecology in movements in, in Latin America. And so that's just something to be aware of, of how in Europe um, sometimes agroecology is, is quite co-opted into more scientific elements when actually its roots are in a kind of political movement. And I, yeah, I guess I felt that was important to mention because if we're talking about land justice if and farming, then agroecology is a framework that kind of integrates eco ecological with justice elements. Um, anyway, so so why fringe farming? Why why should we do it? I mean, Fiona's mentioned some of the things in in reference to uh, urban agriculture, and I guess when I say fringe farming, I mean agroecology farming. But um, really, the exciting thing is about how fringe farming can connect the urban and the rural. Um, in terms of, especially in terms of economies and building regional economies um, that integrate uh, ecological and social elements. And this might be economic benefits with more contracts, services, products, um, and regional economies leading to jobs. It might be social in terms of community development and, and, uh, and agroecological farms often run education programs and there's a lot and, and there's a lot of like keeping horses on there and these kind of activities um, and there was a calculation that if around one percent of the land around london that's currently growing cereals and grasses um into vegetables you could produce an extra million one million kilograms of, of fruit and veggies so this is about really just highlighting um connecting the dots so in the last year, um, there's been a rapid increase in demand for uh, vegpot schemes, um, fresh, ecological, culturally appropriate foods, um, and a lot of the link. All the links in the references will be at the end of the presentation. But there was some research done to show that you know there is a waiting list of nearly seven thousand people for one box scheme in the UK this year. So you've got this demand, and then what do you do with it? Well, you've also got this new generation of growers and farmers that have been through different education programs, um, are ready to, ready to set up agroecological enterprises, but a key barrier to this is access to land. And um, so it's kind of just being like, well, if you've got demand for food and you've got demand for land to grow food, what, what, do you, what, what are you going to do with that? Um, and so we have a project called Fringe Farming, which we, I will let you know about in the next slide. The Fringe Farming Project is a, is a collaboration with, across the UK with different partners um, who you can see on the right hand side. Um, 
across different cities. And really the, the aim of, of this year's work is to kind of understand more deeply the barriers. We know what, um, we know that land access is a barrier, is training also a barrier, is, um, you know, getting startup, the startup costs, is that a barrier? How could we link these things together to, to become opportunities for, for everyone? Um, and then within, within particular cities, we'll be identifying land opportunities and developing local actual action plans, and then, and then also developing a national policy. This is all to, with the aim, with the kind of broad aim to support access to land, to increase access to land um, for agroecological farming, fringe farming, as part of an economic recovery um, from COVID and Brexit. So the, so the cities involved will be Bristol, Glasgow, London and Sheffield and also alongside this um, the Land Workers Alliance are running a peri-urban practitioner forum to build farmer-to-farmer -farmer knowledge um, and also identify key issues. Um, if you want to be involved in that forum and fill out the survey, the link will be at the end of the, um, the slideshow. Um, so yeah, so we with the forum and then also the, the, the city-based work will come out in 2022 with some national policy proposals around um, fringe farming, which perhaps we can connect in with the people's land policy. And then we're nearly there into the final slides. So the way that we're really focusing this year is not totally, but quite a lot on public land um, to highlight to councils that agroecological farming with its multiple benefits can support meeting targets on whether it's um, Sheffield's commitment to a zero carbon city by 2030 or Bristol's one city approach and their education and economic targets or in London's um, good growth objectives around creating a healthy city because the, with the multiple benefits we can really you know councils can really benefit from this in supporting opening up access to public land um, and then I'll just move on to some the final slide. And so some early reflections are, because um, the project's really been only going seven weeks, is um, one of the issues raised was what about, um, you know, this new green market and larger corporations coming into fringe farming, setting up like big warehouses and um, not having very good worker practices. So. So one of the things, like lo looking back into the roots of agroecology, is that to emphasise in fringe farming that we build food systems with the knowledge of people in that area. You kind of that's the root of, of how we build social systems and food systems. So really emphasising the democratic nature of the organisations that get support for public land, um, and this could be like I don't know if people know about community interest companies where there's democratic structures within them. And then another second issue that's come up is this issue of, of who you know and, and kind of like opportunities with councils going uh, to, to maybe larger um, urban agriculture organisations and it not always being that fair. So, so thinking about, say we did, councils were like, well, have some lands to do fringe farming. Just thinking about how do we ensure that that is equitable how, how is that democratic? How is that just? You know, all the basic principles of agroecology. So is that councils who, who might do that? Would they take lists of, info, of people interested or give out lists of possible land? Or is actually 
is that a community organization that acts as a um as a kind of mediator between councils and and community groups the question is what is that what does that look like and that's what we'll discuss more this year um be interested if anyone has, has any thoughts of that um and then finally uh the emerging council actions of what you can do if you work in a council and you want to support this is one and we're finding that actually sometimes councils don't really know what assets they have so it would be really great to transparently map them to enable equitable opportunities secondly to champion some agroecology farms in the peri-urban areas with long-term leases um, three to set up investment funds for green new jobs to support businesses to get up and running fourthly procurement of regionally grown foods so to enable contracts for new businesses to get up get viable have jobs have living wages etc and then fifthly an idea being um, to also set up food hubs that can act as a kind of a regional distributor from the edges of cities but also integrate training and education into those spaces so that's it i think that's um that's that's just our email addresses if you want to say hello especially um it'd be great to get in contact with about the fringe farming project if you have any examples or case studies of councils uh working with community groups to set up um community farms at the edge of cities that would be amazing to hear about thanks for listening right thanks very much Fee and uh, rob for that uh, setting us up for our panelists so alec is going to take over and introduce the panelists and we're going to be asking them a few questions about their projects. Yep. Hello, everybody. So we're going to run a panel session now for about 40 minutes, where I'll just briefly introduce the panelists. But the first question will be really to allow them to introduce themselves more thoroughly. But we have Melina Barrett from Organic Lee. We have Arlene McKenzie from Roots Into Growing. We have David Moranica, a maize farmer based in Enfields. Max Johnson from the Glasgow Community Food Network and director of the Wash House Garden, and Joe Payne from Manchester Urban Diggers and the Platfields Market Garden. So for this discussion, um, we really want to find out more about the panelists and the sort of projects they're involved with, but we're also really interested to understand your views on the relationship between land justice and food justice. Um, how do we ensure growers are able to make a good living from their work, as well as ensuring that good quality food is accessible and affordable to all? how you work with your local communities and what really needs to change to make peri-urban growing more of a phenomena. So if I was to start to um, just ask the panelists to talk about a little bit about themselves and the projects they're involved with. So Marlena, would you like to start by introducing yourself and your project? Uh, I'm just going to share some, a few pictures if I can get this to work. So you might recognise this one already because uh, I've had it in his presentation. Um, this is Corporate Nursery and I know I, know, I recognise lots of faces on the screen who, who know, their, know it and have been there. Um, so Organic Lee is named from the Lee Valley um, and uh, that's where we took the original inspiration. Um, so we're 20 years old. Uh, last month was the 20th. 20th birthday of the first spades in the ground um, and the idea really was looking back at the history of the Lee Valley as was known as the breadbasket of London so those things Rob talked about about um, the fringes of a city being able to feed the city the fertile river soil um, the river as transport into London and down to the Thames on through the on the River Lee um, that was the inspiration for looking originally for land uh, in this area which is um, 
the, well, the Lee Valley obviously straddles um, Wolfen Forest, uh, whole sections of North London, but we were um, given some allotment land, sort of unused allotment land in Chingford, and that's where organically started. And the idea really was um, for to focus on the people as much as the plants um, and the connections that, you, that food brings us in terms of the way that we work together, um, the way that we connect to the land, um, that yeah, definitely having an agroecological approach as, as Rob outlined, uh, working with nature, working within nature, um, nourishing the soil, um, minimizing fossil fuel use, all of those things, and bringing that kind of people-centered, um, having a workers' co-op, uh, our workers' culture at our core, so the idea of people doing things for themselves and for each other, and that idea also, I think, of lifelong learning. You've talked to any grower and they say, like, you've never finished learning new things about how, how you're going to grow. Um, so we started on a small allotment. Uh, well, it was like six allotment plots joined together and um, it was all voluntary people coming, taking home a share of the um, produce and learning together. And then I guess having established some sort of reputation and links in particularly with Waltham Forest in the borough, um, when when this site that you can see on, on the um, picture there, which is the council's um, former plant nursery, when we found out that was being closed down, we started to kind of think about having a lot more space and taking that on. And, and we talked to the council and they agreed to give us a lease. Um, there are quite a lot of these glass houses around the edges of London. And, you know, some of them are already be been put into this kind of use, like um, uh, there's one in, um, Dagenham that growing communities are working on. Uh, there's one in Haringey now that uh, we've been involved in taking on trying to support, uh, definitely not wanting to be like in a kind of empire building sort of set up and just wanting to support that to stay as food growing and to support the local community around it. And Arlene will talk a bit more about the, the way that we're trying to sort of uh, support that as well in terms of um, growers who, who, you know, who are bringing um, their local community experience, but also like really focusing on how um, how growing can become something that you do as a livelihood and can actually um, make a living from. So yeah, that's kind of that's 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 our sort of inspiration, really. Our our um, I mean, I'll talk more in the other questions about our our kind of long-standing kind of peasant history and, and connection to the land in this country. That that is what. Uh, what inspires us and I think is what we need to look for going forward. Great, thank you Molly. Um, Arlene, would you like to go next and introduce yourself and talk about the work you do? Um, yes, thank you Alec. Um, my name is Arlene. I work with Ubele, the Ubele Initiative, which is a, um, a black-led, and I'm going to use, be like Rob, I'm going to use black as in a political term, so it's uh, um, led by um, people of color, people of the people looking at um, minority marginalized people. Um, that's our mission. Um, we have been um, nominated as one of the or the infrastructure development group for London. So um, our motivation at Ubele is looking at the spaces that um, black people hold um, now and in the past and some of the things that have influenced that and some of the changes that have made and to, um, to try to work um, to build capacity 
to work with our interge in an intergenerational way. That means we're working with the elders as well as the youngsters, as well as right across the board. Um, we're looking at um, our tangible and intangible spaces. So we're looking at buildings, um, at um, farms in this instance, at our stories and at how you sustain culture, the development, social development and economic development because this is primarily what we're doing. Um, a little bit perhaps, so our um, involvement with the food movement is through um, a project called um, Roots into Food Growing. And this is a, a project that has evolved. It's, a, it's a, a consortium, a development, a partnership project where we were um, very concerned about the fact that um, we know that Caribbean people came here, predominantly African, Caribbean, Asian, growing, um, knowing how to grow food. Um, food is, is, and to give a little bit of background, um, we are here because the British Empire was there. So in other words, all the, most of the migrants that you see here are here because of the European incursion into South America, Africa, the Caribbean. And in the instance of the Caribbean and Latin America, certainly what we'd call the, um, the, the, the Americas, is also because um, not only was um, land the thing that was captured, but also people. So people were brought into these regions to grow food. And um, so this is, I'm, I'm mentioning this as significant because um, Uvele's function has been, now been to say, so where are we? What are we doing in terms of our own cultural identity, our understanding of food, how we keep ourselves well, how do we understand our history in the context of the food growing? So. Um, our motivation and the Roots into Food Growing program, it's a 16-month funded program in partnership with Organically, um, with um, Land in Our Name Lion, who are conducting a major piece of research on which the moving forward will sit. Um, we're looking at how we can um, recapture some of that space, how we can, um, how we can um, encourage our involvement, our understanding, identify where we are in terms of our own wellness to do with food and food preparation. Um, the other um, entity that's involved, and perhaps the, you, we could say is a major inspiration, is a group of um, black growers who have been based, who are based up at um, Wolves Lane, and they are have pulled together to to create an organization called Black Roots, and they are growing food with a view, with support from Ubele, to creating an enterprise, to look at how this can be sustainable. Um, just to go back a little bit, so a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up here in, I was born in, the, in Jamaica, and um, my, uh, I returned home for a period of time. And one of the, the interesting things is, I mean, if you talk about Jamaica, everybody would say Jamaica ginger, Jamaica cocoa, Jamaica coffee, sugar cane. It's an agricultural country. It's an island. And most of the Caribbean and South America, we have um, 
our crops, our food, um, plants, not just food, but also for spirituality. What is not known is a connection between the people and the spirit of the plants. Um, I worked with a group of um, young people in establishing, um, and many of you may have heard of Rastafari, but Rastafari have been at the forefront of repatriating to Africa and seeking reparations for all that was lost. Now, in, in that reclamation of the land, this Caribbean and South American area is seen in people's minds as a tourism destination. And what has happened is a lot of land has now moved out of the hands of, um, okay, so post uh, slavery was there, slavery was founded on plantation economy. At the end of slavery, people were told to move off the land because the land belongs to the British Empire. And this is not just in Jamaica, the Caribbean and so on. So all agricultural land, all good agricultural land, then reverted to the bigger farms, big farmers. So you get a lot of small farmers, subsistence farming, and people who were um, anxious to get away from the estates, the, the, get their hands out the dirt. You don't, you're, a mark of success is not growing. It's not growing food. Although there is a lot of respect given to growing food because this is how people bought themselves out of slavery. This is how people move forward. So move forward to the migration now into the bigger um, European countries. And people will grow food, but it is still not culturally seen as a mark of moving forward if you're still working in the dirt. Right? I'm trying to give a, a background, a profile, a, a sort of an understanding of what our community um, are facing. So while we know that many people came from India, from the Caribbean, from Africa, knowing and understanding came from rural economies, understanding and respecting what the land can deliver. In the wider context of the bigger world, it is a difficult movement to look back and say, now we're going to return to the land. This is not a mark. Of, of moving forward. So in the Black Roots program, which is the Black Roots Collective that are growers in, in at Wolves Lane, these people have come together and are saying, now we are going to cultivate and make it into a business. The difficulty now is being able to re-energize re that movement, that business side of, of how do we now make money out of, out of um, what it is that we're doing. Ubeli has stepped in to work with Organically, who have all the knowledge and the, the, the technical know-how to be able to strengthen, build the capacity to say, look, this is something we can do. We're going to give you the support and it's going to happen. Not just at the Wolves Lane location, but we are trying to develop in working with the wider research, the growing in different parts of London as a beginning, and then hopefully to spread it out in this is what is possible. So we're very excited about the Roots into Food program because it brings culture, it brings social um, grouping, it brings business management, 
it brings partnerships. There are a lot of elements at play here, and we're looking forward to working with the people's land policy to be able to identify land and with sustain because he has been, we're working, this is all evolving, this is new. And um, in, in this newness, we're, we're just excited, we're glad it's happening. And um, on the call, I'm hoping that we have, um, there are a lot of people who, um, people in our community, in the black community who are growing, and who are very excited about the prospect of being able to now turn their, um, their, what they know and the skills that they have it, to take it to the next level. So with regard to land and land access, I'm going to hand over to David. David um, came in at the last minute. I asked him because I think he, David has, I know David has more experience and knowledge about getting access to land. I can't speak to it um, as eloquently as he can. But I hope that I've been able to explain to you the importance of um, how some of what Rob was saying that, that, that for us, looking at for us as black people, people within who are coming from this rural background and culture and so on, how important it is to revalue all aspects of, of food growing from the, 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 the food that we eat, of growing the food that we eat to the um, herbs we, we have a lot of very important tea herbs um noni that and th and for agroforestry i don't know if you know that jamaica used to be one of the largest exporters of mahogany of dyes of scents and these and now we don't now it's gone so it's, it's this knowledge and the opportunity to um to link what we're doing in the present to knowledge from the past to stories, what are the food stories? What are the, the, um, the songs? Um, it, it, our agricultural past is so important that we, we want to reclaim some of that, revalue some of that, and to bring this into the context of our young people now in order to sustain their identity and their culture. So David, I'm going to pass over to you. I'm, I hope that was clear. <laughs> it's an introduction. Thanks, Ollie. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, my, my name is uh, David Wilfred Mwanaka. I was born in Zimbabwe and uh, I came over to the UK uh, sometime in the early 90s. And um, to me, when I was in Zimbabwe, I grew up eating white maize. Like most people who are not born in this country, whether born in Asia or in South America or whatever, in Africa, wherever, you grew up eating. Uh, certain foods in that part of the world but then when you come to the UK you might discover that the food is either not there or it could be there but not as fresh as it was back home so actually in my case I grew up eating white maize but when I came to the UK it simply wasn't available it wasn't even known but then right at the back of my mind I always this uh, craving for something that I grew up eating in Zimbabwe and uh, um, for some reason it wasn't known in the UK and that's probably, I would say, that's my journey into uh, farming. I think I started uh, farming on a, on a farm or, or piece of land. I started farming because I had a passion for farming, because I had a passion for what I grew up eating. I wanted to eat it again. And I used to live in a... Um, flight in Tottenham, North London, 
and um, landlady. So one day I gave her some seed, maize seed to grow for me to in her garden. And because I didn't have a garden, I was on the top floor. So she did grow the maize seed for me, the maize uh, for me. And then uh, unfortunately, just before the maize actually matured, the lady uh, passed on. So I actually couldn't go down to uh, check how my maize was growing. And I left that flat. But then I had a bit of an understanding or a bit of knowledge that actually I could grow maize in the UK. And from then I started experimenting growing maize in the UK in, the, uh, in my back garden. And from, it's actually from my back garden that I actually discovered I can grow something here. I can actually um, go on to be a commercial farmer in the country. Something that actually when I left Zimbabwe, I never ever dreamt I would be a farmer in this country. I actually was a, a, a journalist in Zimbabwe. But it's from the fact that I had a passion for what I wanted to do. And um, on the other hand, uh, like most people, you you are uh, employed and you probably don't like the job that you are doing and you just feel you're wasting your time and you don't know where you're going. That was actually me. I would say I was one of those people who I could say I was an, uh, I'm just unemployable because uh, wherever I would go to work, I resigned after a few months and also I never held any good jobs. So to me, it was just a matter of uh, well, I wouldn't lose anything if I go into farming. After all, I don't have a good job. So my journey into farming after having experimented growing white maize in my back garden was that I went around um, looking for land. That is, I'd go around, drive around um, in the uh, countryside, uh, especially around London, knocking on some, farm, on some farmers' uh, um, doors, asking them if they had a bit of land or maybe some, something like five or 10 acres for me to start growing. And the answer I was got was now. One reason is they just saw me as, they, they just couldn't believe that I was serious about farming. On the other hand, what is it that I'm gonna farm? The farmers in this country know what exactly what's supposed to be farmed in this country. But I was a different, I was coming from a completely different uh, um, culture altogether. And one, the, one big problem that you've got in this country when it comes to land ownership is that is for most of the farmers in this country, the, the land was, or the land of the farm was passed down to them from, uh, that's maybe their father or their forefathers. And then whoever is farming right now, probably they actually never bought the farm. It's something that was passed down to them. But then if you are an outsider, it's more like you want to join the royal family. You are not part of them and you want to join them. If you don't belong to the farming community, it's so difficult to go in there because really you know nobody in there. Whether you are white or black, it's difficult. I've got to be honest with you. So um, it's up, after some time having gone around London knocking on some farmers' doors and uh, the answer was always no, no, no. I got to a point of thinking again, what's next? What can I do? And uh, while well, I did one stupid thing that was, uh, that helped me anyway, I placed an advert in, one, in a local newspaper. No, it wasn't actually, it was a London newspaper, a free newspaper, but that newspaper had nothing to do with farming. And from there, someone just called me because of if, uh, because they saw that I wanted to grow white maize. They didn't know what white maize was. 
my name as well didn't sound like uh, didn't look like a name of a local farmer uh, david wilfred manaka and that don't really add up in this country as a farmer and as a result white maize never heard of white maize and why is it that you want to grow white maize so i had an article in one of the uh, newspapers and it's from there that had a few offers uh, in london all the way in wales milton Keynes, um, and i eventually ended up in enfield that's uh, north london and um yeah even up to now i would have to say up to this very moment i'm still looking for land whatever i have what i have is not enough i've got more than uh, 40 acres but i'm still looking for land and it's just as difficult as it was for me something like i would have to say right now you are in my position 18 years ago you got to start wherever you are whether you've got a, a garden a small garden or whatever you can actually start doing something and one thing about farming is that it's so fulfilling when you grow something in your big garden and then you and your family you're actually enjoying if you grow your own carrots cabbage or whatever it is it's fulfilling when you've uh, um, come to that point of harvesting what you've grown for yourself and whatever you grow is way way better than whatever you buy in the supermarkets the stuff that you buy in the supermarkets a lot of chemicals is uh, traveled from we don't even know which part of the world it comes from and by the time it gets into this country maybe it's been uh, on transit for a week or two weeks it doesn't taste as good as what you grow in your back garden so i would encourage everyone Whatever little space you've got, you can start from there. If you've got a conservatory, you can actually grow a few trees in a conservatory at the back of your house. You can actually grow some um, vegetables, all sorts of vegetables, and you and your family can actually start enjoying. And at the same time, it's educational as well to your children. You don't end up, we don't want to end up with um, children who have no idea where uh, uh, fruits or vegetables come from. The, most of our children just assume it comes from Tesco because if you say go and you want some vegetables where do you want where do you get the vegetables vegetables from you get them from Tesco although we as adults might be in a position to know where fruit and veg come the only food chain they know is Tesco and you buy your food from Tesco and then you bring it home if I were to give you one good example is I used to live that's in Essex. When I moved from Tilbury, right, I let my house to one lady there, and uh, I had planted some uh, after the lady moved in. I found out that she had chopped off most of the trees that were in the garden, except one tree, a plum tree, was still standing in front of the garden. And uh, the juicy plums there, and they were all on the ground. So I asked you, why didn't you why, why are you not eating these plums and she said i don't know what they are i said if you where from she asked her because as is the uh, supermarket that's uh, nearest to where she lived and i said have you ever seen anything that looks like this from us she said yeah probably i said what is it she said it's, uh, yeah i think it's a uh, they are plums so i asked her don't you think this is the plum that you buy in asda she said yes but the fact that i didn't buy it from the stores means probably shouldn't be eaten but look here it's the same thing that she buys from the stores it's actually a lot tastier because it's grown naturally but the fact that she's not buying from the shop
from the stores is no good. That's the problem that we've got that our children even got the slightest clue of where vegetables and where foods come from, or even the milk that they uh, um, have for breakfast every morning. Where does it come from? It all comes from the large supermarkets. It doesn't come from cows, but from large supermarkets. And this is something that we also need to teach our children. The more we start getting involved in growing food in our back gardens or in allotments, then our children also have the understanding of where food comes from. And again, when you look at um, what happened last year and still up to now, COVID-19 has taught us lessons about uh, growing food, about food, where our food comes from. If we've got something worse than COVID-19 that affected the world, it probably would imply that we can't get the food that we usually get from other countries into the UK. And if that were to happen, just imagine what what this country, what will happen to this country. We haven't got the slightest clue of how to use the bay gardens that we already have. We have looked at the bay gardens as empty spaces, as spaces that are supposed to be left bare as they are. But we actually, all of us can actually grow something in our bay gardens. In my Actually, I always tell people that uh, my bear garden has got more than 80 fruit trees. I've got probably 80 to 100 fruit trees. And then if I were to tell people that you assume it's a massive, massive garden, but it's just slightly bigger than an ordinary garden, but because I've managed to use the land that I have, I got enough land in my garden to do whatever I want, and I still have got my 80 plus fruit trees around the edge of my uh, edges for my, my my big garden so it's a question of managing the little that you have before you think of uh, getting an acre or 10 acres or 100 acres because when you tell people that you want to start farming the first thing they think is how much land do you have instead of i can start with the little that i have and i can change the world with the little that i have and again, before I stop, there's one gentleman I know, actually, who started uh, growing tables and he spoke to the manager. They said, no, I want to grow some salad here. And I believe I can grow them on top of your uh, supermarket. And the manager agreed and he started growing vegetables on top of a Sainsbury's supermarket. And from the top of Sainsbury's supermarket, you bring down his uh, uh, vegetables straight into the uh, Sainsbury stores. and sell them in that um, very same um, uh, store. So I think I have managed to encourage those who have an ambition to start farming, whether you've got the field or you don't, but start somewhere. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. That was really inspirational, those stories. Um, could I move on to Max? Would you like to um, carry on and talk a little bit about the projects you're involved with? Sure, thanks Alec, um, and thanks for having me. Um, so I'm from Glasgow Community Food Network, uh, and I also represent the Wash House Garden. That's my, my day job. <clears throat> um, so I think I'll mostly talk about the Wash House Garden. Um, so we started about three years ago now. Uh, we were just... Um, a couple of people who'd worked in community gardens around the city, um, around Glasgow, um, for a few years. And we'd kind of just realized how vulnerable those gardens are to funding. 
and, and cuts of funding. Um, so you can be running an incredible project one year and then the next year funding gets cut, you know, you're on your knees. So we had also both of us um, kind of been out traveling as well around the world a little bit and just been to cities and been to, to countries where organic food is way more kind of accepted and um, yeah, it's much more of a norm. Uh, yeah. And where market gardens were a bit bigger and a bit more established and a bit more part of the urban environment as well. So uh, we basically just, we went chapping on doors and we went to see a housing association uh, and they were the first people we asked and they were like, yep, we've got this spare bit of land, um, hop on. So that's what we did. And we set up a market garden and the idea was to be a, a community interest company or a social enterprise. So we can run community sessions, we can do education work, um, which we have been doing now for three years, but we can also sell fruit and vegetables to, we started doing it just to cafes and restaurants, which has gone really well. We're supplying a couple of uh, Michelin star level places at the moment, um, but we're also doing a veg box uh, for local people. So basically, yeah, there's nothing particularly remarkable about any of that, um, except that in Glasgow, we're one of two market gardens. Um, and, and that's when we set up, we were the only one in the city. So that shouldn't be exceptional by any stretch of the imagination. And yet it is. Um, yeah. So I don't really know where, where to start with that. Um, but the, I mean, the good thing is, so the Glasgow Community Food Network are beginning to change that. Um, and the city council are beginning to change that. They're opening up land, or the, they say they're gonna open up land, whether they do or not is, a, is another issue. Um, but the Community Food Network has, has a whole load of funding to start, um, essentially have these community activator posts in different areas of the city and have green assemblies form to try and essentially form organizations that will take on land. They also want to start up a kind of citywide food hub where you could go to learn how to be a grower. Um, because I, I don't know if the other growers on, on the call would uh, kind of resonate with this, but if you want to learn how to be a veg grower, it's actually quite difficult to do that. And it's difficult to find proper courses. Um, and if you want to not only learn how to grow, but grow as a business, there's, there's virtually no information on that. Um, and what information there is tends to be uh, in Canada or the US where these kind of they're called biointensive agroecological farms are, are happening um, so yeah hopefully hopefully that will start to change I really resonated with what Arlene was saying I think um, I've always found it fascinating in Scotland people were chucked off their land in the highland clearances um, and they had a spiritual connection with that land Celtic culture was God was the land and the land was God. And before that, the land was the gods. Um, so people were chucked off that land that they'd been on for hundreds and hundreds of years and driven into cities. Um, and in cities, they completely lost that connection with the land, you know, year after year after year. And what we see in Glasgow is um, a city that is 100% post-industrial, 100% um, just robbed of that uh, heritage of, of you know being a peasant culture 
So our, our, our diet is horrendous. I think Glasgow is quite famous for that. Um, our connection with the land is virtually non-existent. And that's what we as an organization want to change. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's enough for me. I'll hand it back to you. Alex. Thank you, Matt. Um, and finally, Joe. Joe, would you like to talk a bit about yourself and your project? Hi. <clears throat> um, yeah, just, um, I'll just go back to how I got into growing. So I was, um, I'm from Salford, which is in a city in Greater Manchester. There's like no markets, growing spaces. It's a very um, urban place to live. It's quite deprived. It's probably one of the most deprived areas in the northwest. Um, and I have no background or family that was in farming or food growing or anything. Um, <clears throat> and then I just got into it. I just was interested in it, but it was. Um, no obvious jobs in that sort of area so um, me and my brother in 2016 when I was 26 and he was 24 um, did a course called Farm Start with the Kindling Trust um, which was a community organic sorry a commercial organic market gardening course which cost us £500 each we got a year long course training in and got some organic land to grow on and then from that we wanted to get into we wanted to grow our own food and do a veg box and then from there it sort of snowballed into a project now where we run um over 10 set different um community food growing projects across greater manchester including a, a rooftop garden with um and sort of um, a very nice green michelin star restaurant and um with links with um, a, a market garden out in the sort of peri urban areas of Manchester. We've got a community, we set up a community market garden in um, a really highly populated, densely populated area of um, South Manchester on a public park. And um, we have some other projects, mainly community based projects around. Yeah, basically what everyone else has said about, you know, access to food, healthy food, green space. Um, these are all just everything that's just sort of like um, been covered basically is what we're about to. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're still we're very new. We formed our CIC, a social enterprise community interest company in um, May 2019. So and we never run any anything like it before it's all brand new to us everything we're doing we're learning as we're going and we've made lots of mistakes um and yeah so this is sort of a very new thing to for us um and doesn't there's not any other sort of organizations in manchester that are doing exactly what we're doing but there's a lot of other community gardens um but we kind of we wanted to link together and and kind of reduce the the stress of of every of running a community garden and by sort of having a central organisation that then went out and could do lots of stuff across lots of different projects. So that's kind of our angle. Great, thank you, Joe. Um, thank you all for introducing yourself and giving us a really good taste of the sort of things you're involved with. Um, I think we just wanted to ask one sort of general question about 
Um, I know at the beginning, uh, Molina, you, and you mentioned that you would like to add a little bit more about um, your opinions regarding access to land and the work you do. And it'd be interesting to know that, particularly in relationship to the projects that you're doing together with Arlene as well. So would you like to talk a bit more about that? Uh, yes, um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm, I mean, I think access to land and access to food just go hand in hand, really. I mean, um, we've heard from various uh, speakers tonight about how the food system is broken. And I think we've talked about agroecology, but I think let, let's also share the concept of food sovereignty, which is something that um, Labia Campesina came up with, which is the International Union of Small Scale and Peasant Farmers. And you know, let's remember that still most people in the world are fed by that kind of small scale farming. Um, and um, I like I like what um, Raj Patel said about this, which is, uh, you know, if you talk about food security, you could have a dictatorship handing out McDonald's vouchers, and that would give everyone food security, but it wouldn't give them food sovereignty, which is the idea of communities being able to control the way that food is produced and traded and consumed, and putting people at the heart of our food systems and policies. So yeah, to grow real food, you need real land. Um, and I suppose what we bring to our sort of, um, you know, kind of the vision of Organic Lee was, was something that, that Max also mentioned about the history of um, the land rights in the UK, which I think then very much interweaves with the colonial history and, the, and, and what Arlene was talking about and bringing those sort of two stories together of, of how people have been um, removed from that right to have land and to have the like to have common land and to share that land and to be nourished and connected to it something that we produced uh, a while back i know obviously you're not going to be able to see all of the um text there but the idea of it was that here's a sort of timeline i'll just zoom in a bit of some of the different things that have happened in terms of the uk's land history and obviously there's all sorts of stories to happen elsewhere across the world as well this isn't a complete picture but that actually you've got two sides to this story and one is the, on the left where you've got this kind of idea of um, uh, historical themes and processes where you've got enclosures and privatization and dispossession of land-based communities so um, you know from in the like sort of 17th uh, 18th 19th century over sort of a hundred year period there were 4,000 acts of parliament and a sixth of Britain's land was pri privatised through those acts of parliament. So there's just been this kind of small scale attrition at that point um, of taking land out of common use and privatising it and you know, people losing their grazing rights, um, that culture of exclusive ownership, you know, how many people, are the 1% the that own half the country now. Um, and that sort of goes hand in hand with this, the way that our food system is controlled by huge corporations as well. So I think both of those things kind of come together. Um, and and I, But then on the other side, there's this history of resistance as well. And this history of being very strong about what our connection is to the land and whether that's, you know, the... the the things that happened in this country in terms of the the revolts here but also you know slave uprisings and people kind of um taking away from that but i think um yeah i think it's really interesting somebody put in the chat about um and, and arlene also mentioned this idea of people kind of looking down on the idea of peasants i mean peasant becoming a kind of a sort of term of uh, like a dirty word 
and and it, it you know it can is that something where we can actually reclaim the idea that we all have this connection to the land and we can all work together and that we we, we all have that right um yeah so i i, I guess um that that's on the on the sort of land side i think uh, th this idea of um common good land use is something that um the group shared assets has has worked um they've also worked with land in our names and sort of looking at um how you know that because i guess that you know there will be questions for people as well about you know where's the democracy should it be local authorities or should it be communities that control these things so there's sort of some discussions to be had there um and i think somebody i think it was probably rob who also mentioned about now being the time kind of post brexit um uh as well as in terms of climate change and um you know in terms of the way that our our current um farming system works where the average age of farmers is over 60 um you know the land ownership is very dominated by the big farms and increasingly those small farms are being lost across um across the world but 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 most heavily in 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 the uk and in europe and and you know that's something that i think we need to to try and challenge really um yeah so the the project that um we're working on together with um with arlena with 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 the belly initiative and with the land in our names um yeah definitely came out of that recognition that um there's this huge cultural knowledge and bank of knowledge about around food growing um, and as Arlene said not necessarily seen um, as something that you would go and it's like well that's going to be my career and that's going to be the thing I do um, and we've we've been supporting things like um, the farm start network we've we've had a similar thing um, happening in London that was mentioned for Manchester about my training do I get get some experience get some land and get started in food growing and the the reason for kind of for, for us for sort of like wanting to join together to do that was to sort of make sure that there, that there's equitable access and that the barriers to being involved in that are recognized so that we can actually work together more closely with um the Bella initiative to kind of yeah to like I think especially it kind of came became really clear at Walls Lane as like you know, the majority of the community around the site is not white British people. And yet, if we're putting out a job advert for, for a farmer and uh, for a grower on that site, and we're not getting people who've got the level two qualification and can get the job, then we're not, you know, we're doing something wrong with our process there. And we need to do something more creative to get through those barriers and to support um, new ways of, 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 of funding um, the access to the land but also that experience of, of being able to grow so that you can make a livelihood out of it because that is different to pottering around on your allotment you know all the things that you need to know about crop planning and succession and harvesting and maximizing your yield and all of those kind of things as well as the business side of it and the marketing side and all of that but just you know that that that's the training that we want to try and support Okay, thank you, Marlena. Uh, Arlene, would you like to add anything else to that? I think, I think Marlena covered it completely, but uh, I would just add one more thing. I think that with what David was saying, that um, 
is really important is that with um, our communities, our black communities, our communities of cultural differences, is that the eating, what you eat is different as well. So the um, Marlena's, the, the project at Wolf Lane is also growing a different kind of food as well, introducing and pro probably playing around and experimenting, as David said, I mean, white maize. And, and it's not homogeneous. I've never eaten white maize before. So, and I'm from the Caribbean and David is, is African, our, our roots. We eat sweet corn, as I said, you know, I had to go into doing my research but yet still he does not have hands to sell the white maize that he produces. So there is definitely a demand here within our communities of a need for specialist foods as well to be able to sustain people's health and wellness and their cultural association and memory. Um, you know, breadfruit, we, we cho-cho, things like this that our people Every time you're traveling from the Caribbean, somebody is asking you to pack up your suitcase with this and that for them. And this is because, and this is because food is so important to our memory and our survival. So um, the project, the Roots into Food Growing Project, hopefully will um, introduce, for want of a better word, that diversity of food into the food system and also the way to cook it, the way to prepare it. These are things that um, um, through dive, through coexistence, we get peace, you know, hopefully. So that food is also a way of getting peace and breaking down barriers. So there's also that aspect of it. Oh, thank you, Arlene. Um, I'm conscious about the time, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to ask a lot of questions to the panelists. So I think I'll just um, give the other panelists a moment so they wanted to, to respond to Anything anybody else has said before we maybe open it up to public questions? I mean, Max, Joe, or David, did you want to add any other final comments before we open it up to the public? Um, okay, in that case, uh, David King, did you want to start opening up questions for the public? Yeah, thanks, Alec. Yeah, there are uh, there are a couple of questions already in the in in the chat. The the first one was from Bob. Is is Bob there? You asked a a practical question. I think it was about like growing on in roofs and basements yeah no we have a we have like a massive flat roof here in central london uh, not a whole lot of land to grow to grow vegetables and we have actually asked the council about growing vegetables on our roof and they said it would be too heavy you know because of the soil and the wet soil and stuff like that so uh that that got us thinking about chickens on the roof because they'd be safe from the foxes and um and also bees and i just was wondering if anyone had any experience trying to get the, their local council to allow them to put animals on the roof <laughs> sorry it just sounds a bit crazy but i just yeah we, you know. not, not crazy at all so we, do, we've grown on go on joe sorry they have yeah, sorry, Joe, one you project on the roof, but it's a car park, so they've already sort of know that it can take the weight of cars, and I don't know if that's just the difference between a normal roof. Um, oh, okay, no, this is not a, yeah. Um, and then, it's, so yeah. yeah, obviously that, that makes a massive difference, but um, yeah. The other one was the other one is a car park as well, and they're saying the count the owners of that car park are saying that they can only take like a foot of soil 
which is a really small, obviously small amount. Um, yeah. But I have seen a really cool project in Ma in London that's um, like hydroponic systems. So you don't need any soil, and therefore the weight is a lot a lot less. Um, so that might be another option. Great. And do people have ideas about funding sources, or I guess well, I'll I'll listen. I'll just look at the sustain website and around so thank you I, I wonder if Fiona and Rob if you're still there whether there are any examples that you know of of uh, people growing food on the roof or or in the basement yeah okay. sorry um Rob do you know any I, mean, I know that grow up London have moved out of London I mean I'm not I'm not an expert on kind of vertical growing or growing in um kind of more um yeah tech kind of t tech growing but rob do you have any do you have any thoughts about signposting um, there was a there was a former project called food from the sky but i think that stopped and it had a it actually was on top of a supermarket in north london and then sold into the supermarket that's right that was in Haringey, i think yeah yeah um but does, yeah so if you google food from the sky and then more generally in New York, there's some really good um, examples of rooftop gardening that also um, make a viable business plan through doing like weddings on top of there so they can really pay people properly and, and things like that. So yeah, if, I think if you have a little search for New York rooftop gardens, you'll find some like, interesting examples and stuff. I, think I would also add, I think your inclination with bees is a good one because if you have the bees high up, then the flight path, um, isn't you know directly into a crowd of people or whatever so it's quite a good idea to go for bees I think. Yeah no there used to be a, a honey people who would help you do that here in London and I don't know what's happened to them. Uh, there are still beekeepers in Hackney and, and other places but uh, there was like a specific bee you know rooftop beekeeping outfit and I don't, yeah they seem to have disappeared so. Yeah what, what you can often do is just chat to a beekeeper and be like do you want to put some hives on the roof? Oh yeah, um, and we'll, we'll just split. <laughs> we'll, we'll just split the honey, you know. I think quite a lot of the time they're up. Yeah, but I was also just interested in animals, you know, just sort of like the if if also if anybody you know because I've been looking a lot at regenerative agriculture using animals and as well as as growing plants and yeah. Anyway, I'll I'll dig around. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Um, yeah. There was um, also a question from Kerry-Anna about working with, with councils. Kerry-Anna, are you, you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. Um, and Fee dropped me, Fee, Fiona from Sustain them dropped me a uh, private note as well about meeting with Hackney Council. So thank you very much for that, Fiona. Um, but yeah, I've been trying to get a, a community garden set up on the council estate where I live in, in Hackney. And it's actually really frustrating. And although they have policies around um how to do it um it is but i mean i work in project management for sustainability for a big broadcast broadcaster and so that's sort of like my field of work so i have the expertise but i think you know it, it's very much led by the tenants and residents and um you know if you don't have that expertise it's it's quite uh, restrictive i think for a lot of people um you know who where it is very difficult to get the council engaged um you know and 
I've been, you know, on at them for seven months now consistently. And, you know, in the first instance, like me as a resident, I had to get a steering group of tenants um, together. And the council did have a bit in the fact that they put um, us in touch with Cordwainers Grow, who are running a micro grow project. Um, so I worked with them to, to get the steering group together. Um, so now we have a steering group. So we're kind of like doing everything our side, but getting the council to, I mean, it's taking them months to, you know, come and do a site evaluation and sort of trying to get out of them the information about, you know, what are the next steps for funding and, you know, how do you go about that? And it's all very much, I guess, on the onus of residents and tenants who not everybody has a skill base in working with projects or project management um, to do. And, you know, for me who works in that field to, to still be going several months later to even try and get them to approve the land, which I literally see outside my window, you know, I could literally go down there and, you know, obviously, you know, put some, uh, put some raised beds down there myself. And, you know, our, actually the tenants that are part of the steering groups were actually going to gorilla garden on our council, on our estate in the meantime, because in the rose beds with companion planting, that's sort of like my next avenue for, you know, uh, trying to get some stuff for, you know, our, the residents and tenants here who probably, you know, like need access to, um, you know fresh fruit and vegetables more so than uh sort of maybe other you know other areas uh people who live in houses and things like that or have gardens that have better access um but yeah it's just it is frustrating and i don't yeah it's kind of like that that access to land part of this discussion that you, you know even though the councils do have policies around it actually getting them to allow you to use the land seems seems to be really quite hard um can i just i was gonna say um we we work mainly with councils and there's two ways that we've had the two solutions to that from our point from our experience is we've been literally told to ask for forgiveness not permission and then literally told to go and just do it um, by actual members of the like like staff of the park and I genuinely, you won't get it. Like we're still waiting on a lease for our, our the space that we have on on the park, and we've been there for four years. So if we'd have been waiting now, if we would have still been waiting, you know, for, for permission, we wouldn't have done anything. Uh, and then the other way that we've managed to get in with the council is by going from um, working with really good chefs that. Um, are going to boost their economy and that's what they care about like they they've got this um if they can say that they've got this amazing restaurant that's growing food and the projects are there then they can see that that will directly impact their you know it'll look good for them so we have got like a, an in straight away because the, the chefs have already got the in so that's our the route into the camp to get in land um that's just from in Manchester and the greater Manchester area. So it's kind of like linking up with organisations and groups that are already in with them and know the right people to talk to and then like jumping on the back of that, which helps. I guess. Uh, Thank you. That's really useful to know. And yeah, that was kind of my point around guerrilla gardening and the guerrilla planting, you know, just go ahead and do it and speak to the you know the estate gardeners and just say please don't please don't dig this up 
Yeah, were, I can't imagine they would. They really mean. <laughs> yeah. The the other thing I was going to say is just housing associations. In in my experience, have um, have, have land, and for them, it's it's a cost to to maintain it. So I have found in the past that they've been quite receptive to to giving it over, of often free of charge. So I would, I would definitely encourage people to look into their local housing associations and just go and talk to them. Yeah, I was going to say the same housing associations, but also I would say maybe shared assets might be a useful resource. They have got some resources on their website about um, how councils should be looking at making good use of land. And, you know, you've obviously got a whole diff whole set of different things that you can be saying to the council about why it's good to do this from social reasons, climate change reasons and all of that. Um, but it does, yeah, it, it, it does just depend on the persistence, I think, or sometimes the luck of who you end up being friends with I think is, is, is often the way it works yeah okay well, I Hello. went with um Fiona or sorry Fiona or really Rob so Fiona or Rob so like you know whether Carriana's experience is typical or whether they're you know there are so like uh, progressive local authorities out there yeah it's really it's really interesting to hear Carriana's experience um and I would say that it is, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of frustration about um, uh, getting support from local councils and it's something that we, we at Sustain feel like we need to do a lot of work around. Um, and, uh, and it's hard because I think there's, yeah, there's lots of stumbling blocks. It's, also, it's complicated to know who to get in touch with. And um, I think from the council's point of view, sometimes food growing is thought of as a bit of a specialist thing and, you know, so they kind of leave it alone. Um, or they don't know it's very cross-cutting between different departments which can be you know a real opportunity but it's also a challenge because nobody really knows who's responsible for it and then yeah we've, we've heard some stories just this morning actually about um, a project uh, up north that have you know just been so frustrated at um, yeah not not being able to uh, access land despite the fact that they got quite far in the in the conversation and we're you know we're um promised access and you know and then have been uh yeah um have had uh a yeah a fail at the end um of the process but i have put um i think it is important that we celebrate the councils that are doing well so that we kind of show the other ones up if you like almost and kind of raise them up so i think that's something that we're trying to kind of profile those councils that are doing well and are um, and are being more creative and forward thinking about supporting food growing initiatives and all the different uh, the different agendas that those food growing initiatives meet. Um, and also we're looking at where councils are putting food growing into their strategies and their plans. Um, so I have also put a link if anyone's interested in some of those case studies. And we're going to be taking that further. And I've, I've just mentioned in the chat that we're running an event later in April, um, which will be for councils, but it will also be for community food growing initiatives and network organizations so that we start to kind of bring that dialogue together a little bit more and you know can uh, inform councils on what they should be doing to support on a, at a local level I just I just wanted to add that um, I also in the chat put a toolkit that um, the community food grows network produced a few years back and it includes in there like example letters who to talk to in the council and stuff like that. So it's quite a handy little toolkit for, for some hot takes. Thanks. I was also uh, gonna say, sorry, don't, go ahead. Don't forget the great 
don't don't forget the Greater London Authority if you're in London as well as your local councils because um, uh, you know they they've got this good growth fund uh, which Fiona mentioned in her um, this sort of good growth vision for London um, and that includes I mean they they've given funding for um, developments at our site and at Wolves Lane um, and it's really exciting that they're sort of saying well that is their that's their kind of flagship project into what like one of their products because it's meeting mayoral priorities and stuff so you know we have to jump through lots of hoops to get our funding but um, in terms of the actual support and the concept of um, we've, we've sort of put it forward as this concept of a market garden city so it's like yeah you've got one in Chingford you can have one in Wood Green and then there's one in Dagenham you know where else are we going to have all these market gardens across London so um, it might might be that you could look um, for support there as well uh, thanks thanks everyone um, I just got a message from Bonnie as well that's so like we're going to be collecting all of these resources and so we can send them out so um, don't forget to sign up to our mailing list if you're not subscribed already um, there was a question from Leslie if you're there Leslie about changing the culture of uh, food growing yes um, I just wanted I mean as as, as much I mean uh, um, land is obviously the, a huge huge issue and you know that can't be um, denied but there's also another big problem I think we have as food growers which is that often it's seen as um, either a sort of hobby that people do when they get elderly or um, something that people used to do years ago um, or you know or, or a peasant's work which is back breaking repetitive boring you know carrying water for miles and you, know, you have these sort of visions and i think that's all sort of that has to be seen as part of the justice work because um to me the the, the sort of propaganda or the or there's you know hundreds of years people have been saying you know the city is where it's at it's really interesting and you know not working with your hands is absolutely important you know you should be working with your head all the time as if they're separated you know as if people sitting at computers are only doing head work and people you know working the land it's not creative and it's it's not you don't use your brains at all i mean it's just rubbish um but it's a really big piece of work i think to kind of change the narrative and um you know i was interested maybe in and Arlene and David and how how you see that particularly um, uh, in this country you know having a, having a, a brighter perhaps uh, view of how that relates I mean that, that there's another story as well in this country which is that you have to be sort of landed gentry to um, if you are a farmer and that means you just boss other people around really you never get dirty yourself you know sort of so i think you know we need young people joining us and you know all of all sorts of people um ha have you got any ideas about how to change the narrative alina so um that's what we're doing we're working to change the narrative we're introducing um revaluing the the importance of land and the importance of eating well and of health and of reintroducing um i mean we've got the, the black roots team have a really good um, youth program in that they're they go into schools um they introduce young people to it from an early age i think um getting our young people and families involved and showing the value of the land is it's a long haul it's not an easy one um, 
there is the, the perception, of course, you know, you're not successful if your hands are in the dirt. This is just something that we have to fight against. We have to um, revalue it. And that's the bottom line, whether it be from the um, peasantry in the rural areas to, um, to you know, add the dimension of race into it. And you have, you've got it even more. You know, this is, let me get away from this, um, which has been historically a sign of um, downpression, you know. So we, we're working at it. We're, we're, we're bringing in the volunteers. Marlena has a, a program where we're trying to, um, to bring in volunteers to Wolves Lane generally and hoping and working at identifying and targeting more of young black people to be volunteers in this area. Because it is also, we're moving into high unemployment. We're moving into um, young people who, who don't have, and, and old, all generations of people who through this COVID experience is now um, have to reassess what they're doing. So um, yes, it's a challenge. It's not going to be straightforward, but we are going to work at it and we're going to reach out as far as possible to be able to show how wonderful this, this um, involvement is. And, and David, did you want to, to come in there? Uh, personally, I think the councils can actually do a lot. Well, if I were to give an example, in Enfield, I know there's a farm that's been sitting there for years and that uh, nothing has been going on. And I've approached the council several times. I've written letters to them. I've, literally, I've actually written a letter to the MP and they have just said, well, we, that, that farm is tenanted, but there is nothing is going on, but they're just not willing to uh, let someone use that farm for something that's constructive or let the community at least use that farm. And I also know maybe in some uh, parts of the, uh, um, of the city, there could be some areas where the council has earmarked for a house, a housing development. And maybe they would want to, to build houses in the next five to 10 years. Before they actually build the houses, they could actually use that land to, I mean, for uh, uh, farm uh, uh, projects because, well, that land is still going to be cleared and it's going to um, have houses anyway. So why not use, use the land right now for something else when the time comes for them to build the houses, then they build the houses. But I think there's a lot of um, red tape, a lot of... Uh, People in the councils not wanting to be responsible for anything because maybe if something goes wrong five or ten years down the line, I will be blamed for that. So I personally think the councils have been doing enough to help the situation that we have at the, at the moment regarding uh, uh, land distribution. Thank you. Um, there was a question also, I think, uh, from Marco about aligning growing with uh, public procurement. Marco, are you, are you there? Uh, yeah, I was um, fascinating um, listening to all the speakers this evening. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if there are any chances or if anyone's had experience of like aligning um, public procurement. So like the councils must buy in a lot of um, meals for schools, for example. So are there, are there ways to kind of look at through those routes to help un unlock land and and jobs to to grow food locally. Like kick off on that one. Yeah, go on. Um, I think. I mean, I know that in Manchester, um, there's been um, not public procurement, but like with the university 
looking at the, how the university will will buy um, food and, and 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 in fact getting them to be part of a a cooperative of producers and consumers along with other restaurants so that actually you're having that kind of more equitable exchange I think with the public procurement it I think I mean I guess the two barriers to that one is the scale of operation when things have got to this scale of rather than it being the individual school that you could have a, a direct, direct relationship with if it's kind of become this like the whole borough is being supplied then it's hard for the smaller groups to manage that and then I guess the other one is um, just this problem we've got in our food system of of the the kind of big big scale food production being very cheap and um, yeah, and it's very hard to kind of match those prices and it, you know that's just part of this much bigger system but I think I think it had there are some places so like Manchester there's I think in Devon or Dorset there's been like a school school meals so actually like it was the program to, to cook the school meals rather than um, just provide the produce for them and, and make that sustainable and there's there are there's also a program called ready healthy which is looking at how um ready meal provision for things like food banks can be more um like proper decent quality food rather than um just um sort of junk foods or other people's um surpluses and actually look at that quality so that there's some things there i think and um yeah i think um i just wanted to pick up also on the previous question about the um how you change this culture and i suppose um one thing that really uh, i've really seen when um you know some of the people that have come through organic leads progression routes and and so on and, and some of the people we've worked with especially younger people we've worked with is that the school system is so rigid and it so doesn't suit a lot of people that actually if you can create exciting opportunities there's a sense of freedom of being outside and working on the land that actually you, you know you could you can kind of just give a completely different perspective to that sense of of the toil and the and the kind of you know this is drudgery sort of thing and we've definitely seen a, you know quite a number of people who've gone like oh this is actually really what I've always wanted to do and I feel really at home with this um and then um yeah it, it, you're just kind of it's just such a shift of our whole mindset and our whole kind of Western, like, you know, as I said, like separation of mind and body and all of those sort of things. So there's just a lot to do about that. But I think as you, as you move into an era where we've got to deal with our fossil fuel use, then you also look at the joy of people working together and how many people can just do the weeding and get it done rather than a tractor driving around with one person or not even a person. Now it will just be like a robot, you know? So it, I think it's just trying to keep that, that sense. So you're saying the children are our future, Marlene. <laughs> um, uh, Max or Joe, did you did you want to come in on 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 that on the public procurement uh, question? Uh, I think yeah, I think it's the same as what um, the other ones were saying that about it's actually being able to supply regularly um, a set amount of food for a large scale is actually really hard to do and to guarantee to guarantee that on a small like scale and so I think that's where the problem is and it's I think you have to have a really 
really connected network and really strong communication and organization for that to actually work for the scale of the sizes of organizations that can buy or you know that want to be um you know at hospital level or school level or whatever so um we're gonna to have to wrap up soon but there was a a question from bonnie actually which was about you know is there you know it's great to hear of all of these sort of like projects but it's like you know are are you linked up is there any sort of like regional or or national body that you know you're linked up to that could develop or promote policy on on your behalf or is there space for one um i just think arlene had her hand up first that she wanted to respond to it's the last just, question yeah it's just just a quick quick um note we've I've, we've been having some meetings with um a very interesting group who are working through the churches and um i think that's really it was really an eye-opener in that conversation and the journey was just looking at the land that churches have and um, particularly with the african and the caribbean communities where the churches have got such an influence on what people do families do and um usually the church churches gatherings involve food and eating and perhaps even putting money together to buy food and um putting money together was a new perspective to grow food was was an interesting partnership that we're looking at um, trying to nurture so i just wanted to say that we can't ignore that particularly for a lot of that people who are involved within the mosques within the churches within our various communities there's a lot of activity that's centered around faith and the land. Thanks, thanks, Arlene. Um, and thank all the, the, the speakers and participants. I'm just going to hand, <coughs> hand back to Bonnie now, who's going to wrap up and tell you about where we're going to go from here. Well, it's, it's a very difficult to wrap up. I think that I think all of us are amazed at what we've heard tonight. And especially for some of us who aren't directly involved in any food growing whatsoever, to hear about all these projects and what's going on around the country is amazing. And uh, I suppose the only one frustrating thing is that I feel that we need to have a massive movement. And it's happening all over the place. And this is, I suppose, one of it's one of my questions, but really um, all the people who are involved in wanting to change the food system, um, we really need to, to have this movement that can force change through. And uh, part of it is going to be getting access to, to land because at the moment is, is pretty much being monopolized by a few people and everyone is, seems to be scrambling around for trying to fit into where, um, where the, you know where there is land available and uh, when really when you think about it there's probably loads of land that's available but it's dominated by private owners and we can't get access to it so we really need to start pushing for gaining more land for people and less for profit for private profit um, of these large agribusinesses and those housing developments etc etc um, so thank you really to all the speakers and people have put in some loads of links and uh, there's a lot of things going on that people can 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 look at and sign up to in terms of our next uh, 
seminar, which is the last one, I think you're going to find that it actually follows on quite nicely from this one. We're actually going to look at look take a look at global food systems um, partially because obviously it's a huge topic. We can only deal with it to a certain extent, but we're going to look at how the general global capitalist food system works and its impact in particular on farmers in the global south. And the thing is about that is we've got a speaker from Brazil who's going to talk about some of the things that are going on there. And what really I think is important is we have so much to learn about from what's going on there. And so much is happening. There's a whole loads of people are fighting to keep system, food systems that are working well, that are healthy, that are feeding people, but they're having to fight against global capitalist agriculture to maintain this, you know, they're having to resist land grabs. And so much is going on that one of the main themes is learning what we can learn here from what's going on there. And uh, I think there's some very inspirational examples that we're going to hear from Brazil. And then we talked about exploitation in the food industry. Well, we've got a speaker who's going to talk about who actually spent six years working in a food processing um, factory in, in West London. And this is all very well, all these, you know, what the jobs that people are doing, but it's nothing compared to the employment of migrant workers, of you know, factory assembly line workers in the food processing industry. And these people are going through hell. And really, we want to change the whole food system so we don't have to have people don't have to be doing those sorts of jobs that we're going to be producing food in different ways. And then leading on from what people were saying that we're going to discuss about well, what is the future? And our speaker is someone called Chris Smage, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who actually wrote a book called Small Farm Future. And he's arguing very much for a return to the land. This has been one of the themes here. And not return to the land and say, oh, we're going back to some romantic past necessarily, but that more and more people, we're going to need more people on the land. And this isn't going backwards, it's going forward and getting more and more people involved in, in growing and looking after the land, not just for food, but for the environment and everything like that. So we'll actually be considering, well, maybe we should be thinking about a return to the land. And it doesn't have to mean being being backward, but actually being something that would be a really important step forward for all of us. So again, I'm, I think you can all join me in thanking all of our speakers. I don't know if anyone wants to say anything else now that I've any last comments from any of our speakers or any more advice or resources that we'd like to we could share with people and if not we will this recording will be available to listen to again and also we'll be putting all these resources together and hopefully people will be able to get involved in some way in all these exciting projects <laughs>